The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal. Through him who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. A reading from the book of Isaiah. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Be God. Please stand for the psalm. And we are going to read this in unison. So we begin. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, we will seek your good. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. You may be seated. A reading from Romans. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The word of the Lord. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angel of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as it were in the days of Noah, so will it be in the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, and one will be taken and one left. And two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Two women, um, therefore, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this that if the master of the house had known at what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The Gospel of the Lord. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks and praise. We celebrate that your words will never pass away, that they are eternal. We are so thankful, Lord, that we can hear your word this morning and that we can learn from you. We pray that you would teach us, Lord, through your word, through your spirit. We ask this in your powerful and holy name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So uh, growing up, I had an older brother. I still have an older brother, um, but uh, growing up, he was three years older than, he's still three years older than me. I keep using the past. Growing up, my three-year older brother and I um, uh, got along well uh, for the most part, um, but like all siblings, 
Uh, we certainly had times where uh, we had conflict with one another. We had disagreements. Uh, the way we worked out our conflict and disagreements was not actually through uh, physical fights, um, thankfully, um, for a younger brother, um, but um, it tended to get worked out through sort of acts of um, revenge against one another, a back and forth that usually grew more and more as, as time went by. And so, for instance, by acts of revenge, I mean um, uh, perhaps one brother was in the shower and the other brother would sneak in and flush the toilet, uh, which in my house growing up was a cruel thing to do. The, the blast of hot water you would get in that old house uh, was painful. Um, and then maybe the other brother would respond by you know, hiding at the top of the stairway at night as the one brother was going up to bed and jumping out and scaring him. Uh, they could be brought to a new level, sneaking into the brother's room, stealing something of his, leaving a ransom note of what he must do in order to get this valuable thing back. And it would go back and forth, more and more creative ways to get revenge against one another. And inevitably when this happened, there would come a point where I, as a younger brother, would have some sort of act of revenge, some sort of prank that I was so proud of and so happy about that I had gotten my brother in some way. And then he would come to me and he would say to me, when you least expect it, expect it. Right? I don't think he was the only person that said that. I think he caught that from somewhere. But I can tell you that it struck terror in my little brother's heart when he would say that. When you least expect it, expect it. Right? I am going to get you back, and I'm going to get you back in a way that you can't even imagine. And of course, I would obsess over this threat. I'd think through, like, how do I expect something when I least expect it? And if I think of the moments when I least expect it, is that when he expects me to expect it, and so he's going to get me at another time? Or I'd think, like, when does this end? Like, it could be years from now that I'm still waiting on this revenge, right? That, that it could be my wedding day that he gets back at me. And so this was the, the way my brain went. Um, eventually, I realized, oh, actually, that threat, that's the act of revenge. Like anything else he does is small compared to the uh, fear that I felt in contemplating that threat. Now, I want to think today of Jesus' words, um, which are actually very similar to those words that my brother spoke to me at the end of this um, reading. You can see them at the bottom of page 8 in your bulletin. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. When you least expect him, expect him. Is what Jesus is saying. When you least expect me to come, expect me to come. But he is not saying that as a threat. That is not to cause us to feel fear. Right? The very opposite. That is an invitation. That's actually an invitation not to fear. Jesus is saying, as a follower of me, you are to live in expectation at all times. Right? And again, that's an invitation to grow in Christ. To grow in maturity is to live in that expectation that he calls us to. So I want to consider that today. What does it look like to live in the expectation of the coming of Christ? To, to respond to, again, what I believe is an invitation to us to expect him. This is the first Sunday of Advent. Um, and uh, the um, uh, season of Advent actually marks the beginning of a new church calendar. We have in our bulletin today actually a great picture of the church calendar. Um, look at it for just a second, but then listen to me again. But um, at the back of the bulletin on page 10, um, or 19, I'm sorry, page 19, you can see there uh, a great picture of the, the church calendar and um, uh, kind of note the different seasons. And again, Advent marks the beginning of a new liturgical year. Now, it's interesting that at the beginning of a new liturgical year, traditionally the readings for this Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent, at least some of them, have to do with the end of the world. So at the beginning, 
we are contemplating the end. Now, in one sense, I may, we may think, well, that doesn't make much sense. In another way, it makes a lot of sense. Right? Just like at the beginning of a new year, people will often contemplate, how do I hope this year will end? What do I want to see happening in this year so that when I get to the end of the year, this is what things are like? At the beginning of a school year, right, for students, right, we think about what do I hope to accomplish this year? What will this year be like? And so in that sense, as we begin a new liturgical calendar, a new um, uh, season, we are thinking about how will things end? How do I live in such a way in light of the end? But also it's appropriate that at the beginning we're thinking about the end because the end is the beginning. When we consider the end of the world, we're considering the beginning of new creation, of a new heavens and a new earth. We are considering the resurrection of the body that is to come when Christ returns. And so it's a time marked by hope, as our first candle was this morning, the, the hope candle that we light today. So a season of expectation, what does that expectation look like? If you look at our uh, Matthew reading, um, this teaching actually that Jesus is giving here, uh, we actually jump in sort of in the middle of the teaching. And so where it begins, actually the beginning of chapter 24, Jesus and the disciples are leaving the temple. And the temple in Jerusalem at that time um, was very impressive. Um, it was sort of a wonder at how big it was, how well uh, put together it was. But Jesus says these surprising words as they are walking out of the temple. He says, you see all these, pointing to the temple, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So pointing to this amazing structure, he says, actually, this structure will come down. It will be destroyed. His disciples respond by asking him this. Tell us, they say, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They understand, as Jesus is speaking about the temple, right? They understand that's speaking to his coming, to to judgment, to the end of the age. Now, when the disciples are asking about his coming, they're not thinking second coming, at least probably not, right? Because this is before Jesus has died, before he has rose again, before he has ascended into heaven, right? These are things that they are still understanding, even though Jesus has spoke about them. They still don't understand all that Jesus will do. So probably in asking about his coming, they're thinking about, you know, his coming in judgment, his coming in power. They're just starting to understand, this is the Messiah. And so they're trying to figure out, if he's the Messiah, when's he going to restore Israel? When is he going to bring about a new age? When will the end of the age come? And they're wanting to know the timing of this. When is this going to happen? Clearly, this comment you made about the temple means that something is coming. When will it come? What will it look like? And Jesus begins by speaking to them of the tribulations that they and the nation of Israel will experience and that God's people will experience. Probably not what they wanted to hear. But he tells them, right, there will be false teachers that will come, that will claim that they are the Messiah, but it's not true. That there will be persecution that will come. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be violence that will come against you, right? You'll experience great upheaval. And so he's been speaking about these tribulations when we get to the point of the teaching, which is in our, our bulletin, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, that tribulation that he speaks about includes, at least most believe, that he's speaking about the destruction of the temple. In A.D. 70, um, so not long after the ministry of Jesus, right, the Romans came into Jerusalem and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And so in speaking about that tribulation, many again see a specific reference to the destruction of the temple. And so he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of heavens will be shaken. 
you are with us this summer when we were looking at the uh, minor prophets, maybe, you, maybe that sounds familiar. That's like prophet language that we see in the Old Testament, in the minor prophets and in the, the prophets, right? It's, it's imagery of the end of days, of the day of the Lord, where very, the very creation is shooken up, right? The creation reveals, right, that something new is coming and that an end is coming. And he says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. They ask him what signs, but actually the only time that Jesus, in answering their question, uses the word sign is right here. Right? This is the sign to look for, the coming of the Son of Man. Right? That's a term that Jesus used to speak of himself. Right? The coming of the Messiah, the Son of God, when I will return. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn. I'll say more about that in a minute. But they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels, and they will gather the elect from the four winds. It's kind of wild when you think about this, that Jesus is speaking to a very small group of disciples. Those who had put their faith in him and were his followers was a very small group, and yet he could speak of his coming and the elect, right, the people of God, those who have put their faith in Christ being gathered from all over the world, right? Again, we see the prophetic um, uh, truth um, of Jesus' words, right? He knows that, you know, there will be millions and millions that will worship him, and that time will come when they will be gathered um, at his coming. And so the first thing we can say when we consider expecting Jesus, what does it mean to live in expectancy, is that we live in eager expectation. This is what we're longing for. This is our hope, that our Lord comes again and we see him and we are gathered with all of God's people into his presence, that we are brought into new creation for all eternity, eternal joy, eternal, again, worship of our Lord and celebration of him. This is our deepest longing. This is our hope. When I was taking a class in seminary in eschatology, which is a fancy word basically for last things, for the end of the world, and, and studying, you know, what does the scripture say about the end and the new um, creation? Our professor one day asked, what do all Christians agree about? We spent a lot of time in seminary talking about Christians disagree about and fighting over it, but he was like, what do we agree about? Okay, you know, maybe there's disagreements about the nature of Christ's return and what it will look like and what will happen when he returns, but what do we agree on? And so students start saying things like, well, we agree he is going to return, <laughs> that there will be a bodily return, um, there will be a second coming of Christ. We agree in the new heavens and new earth. We agree in the resurrection of the body. And as we were listing off these things, our professor stopped us, and he said, there's one thing you haven't said that all Christians should agree upon in regard to the second coming of Christ, and that is that we should long for it. That it should be our deepest hope to be with our Lord and to experience his second coming and to rejoice with him. And I'll never forget that because it's stuck in my head, right? Theology isn't just about, you know, what we believe in our minds, which, although that's really important, it's about what we feel, what we long for. When we consider the coming of Christ, we should consider that that is our deepest hope. That is our deepest longing to, for him to come again, for us to see him and be gathered with him uh, together right, as, the, as the people of God. Sometimes I'll hear um, Christians sort of make a joke, and I probably made this joke, where they're talking about something that they're looking forward to. It's like, oh, I can't wait. I'm so much looking forward to it. I hope Jesus doesn't come back before it happens. Um, um, maybe you've made that joke. It's not that funny, so it's okay that you didn't laugh. Um, uh, but again, the idea is, right, you know, it's like, I know that my greatest hope is Jesus' return, but I'm really hoping for this as well. But I think in that joke, it actually reveals something, right? It's kind of an honest joking of, I know my greatest hope is Jesus, but sometimes I hope for things in this life more than I look forward to his coming. 
And the fact is, it's understandable, right? Because we can get our minds around if, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting married. I'm looking forward to a, a time away, a break. I'm looking forward to a new job, right? That's something we can sort of understand and, and comprehend. But looking forward to the second coming of Jesus, it's almost beyond our imaginations um, how good it will be. But what often happens when we experience those good things we're looking forward to, and they're often very good things. It may bring a lot of satisfaction and joy to us. Again, a marriage or a, a job or some new experience. We experience those things, but then alongside of that, we also continue to experience that longing. Right? And many have said, man, I, I just thought this would, would satisfy that longing, and yet I still long for more. And sometimes they think, well, the answer is, well, I just need a different spouse, or I need a different job, or, or a different experience. And actually, what we can say is, oh, as good as the gifts are of this world, there's something much deeper that I long for. Actually, I believe that longing and recognizing that I eagerly expect and long for the coming of Christ helps us better enjoy the gifts of this world, right? Because we're not asking them to fulfill that longing. We're recognizing that longing will only be fulfilled when the Lord returns, when I see him face to face. So I can enjoy the good things of this life Knowing that that longing, that eager expectation, that's just part of life, right? That's part. Until he returns or until I see him face to face, that's just what I live in. And so recognizing that is actually a joy, realizing this is part of our faith as Christians. And so there's eager expectation. But secondly, I would say there's wise expectation. And our expectation, our looking forward to the coming of Christ should be marked by wisdom. Jesus calls us to that. In the next two uh, paragraphs there, in that reading on page 8, it may at first seem like there's something kind of contradictory that Jesus is saying. Because first he is saying, his coming is near. Right? Look at the fig tree. So he's talking about, look, these things will speak to my coming. And so these things, this tribulation, these um, challenges, right, this violence that I'm speaking about, that speaks to my coming, and my coming is near. So just as you can look at a fig tree, you see its branches, um, uh, and those branches, those leaves tell you summer is near. When you see these things, you know my coming is near. He says in verse 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Again, that's why many believe that specifically he's speaking of the destruction of the temple, Right, the destruction of Jerusalem, right? That generation who was listening to him at that moment, they witnessed that. Many of them did, right? They saw, actually, the destruction of Jerusalem. So he's saying, that will take place, this tribulation that I'm warning you about, it will take place in your lifetime. And when you experience that, you will know that my coming is near. And so he's saying his coming is near, but then in the next paragraph, he's making it very clear that the timing of his coming is unknown. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And that's, that's you know, surprising. Right? Jesus, in speaking of himself as the Son, he's affirming his divinity, right? He's not a Son. He is the Son of God, the divine Son of God. But he's saying even the Son, at least at that moment, does not know the timing. Right? And he compares it to the days of Noah, to the flood. Just as people were surprised by the flood, people will be surprised by his coming, by his second coming. And so he says, verse 40, two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. There's some debate. Is the one taken, taken into judgment, or taken into the presence of the Lord? Is the one left, left to judgment, or, you know, left to enjoy new creation? But either way, he's saying both will be surprised. Right, but one will be taken into glory, right, and one um, will face judgment. 
but it's a surprise for both. He's not saying one won't be surprised and one will be. Now, again, those who know the Lord are expecting his return. They are looking forward to and expecting his coming, but they don't know the timing. And again, to make it clear, he compares it to a thief coming in the night. You don't know the timing when the thief will come. And so we hear both that he is near, but also that the timing is unknown. The way uh, one uh, Bible commentator I read um, this week put it is that his coming is imminent and it's incalculable. Um, I, I love that, right? It's imminent. It's any time, but we can't calculate the time of his coming. Now, some actually have read that, you know, no one knows the day and hour and have said, well, okay, maybe not the day and hour, but I think we can figure out the year, right? Or maybe we can figure out like the decade, you know, um, uh, and do that. Right? And so you have all these predictions throughout Christian history of people figuring out the year, and they were wrong. So I think they're missing the point. I don't think the point is, well, you can't do the day and hour, but you can get close. Rather, what Jesus' point is, you don't know. It will be a surprise when I come, but my coming is near. His coming is near does not mean you can figure out the timing. Right? We know it doesn't mean that because he follows it by saying you can't figure out the timing. What is coming as near means it can be any moment. As he says, I'm at the very gates. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be a thousand years. When my family and I traveled in um, uh, Kenya for our sabbatical, uh, we traveled around with our friend, Pastor Joshua, who's now studying here in Minnesota, so many of you have met uh, Pastor Joshua. And as we would travel around, um, uh, um, we would get close to the area where we were going, and he would say, we are here. And the first time he said that, we thought, oh, we're here. And we were looking around like, I thought we were visiting a school. I don't see any school. And then we realized, oh, that was his way of saying, you're in the region um, of where we're going to end up, right? And we began to understand that. I believe in the same way when Jesus is saying, I am near, he is saying, you are in the time where my coming could be at any moment. And that time, right, began pretty much at the destruction of Jerusalem and goes until his coming. And so that is the time that we're in, the time of the nearness of the Lord's coming. And so we need wisdom to live into that. Wisdom to say, what does it mean to live in the reality that Christ's coming is near? And what does it mean to honor the fact that we can't calculate the timing? We want to, obviously. Again, when we look at church history, we know people want to know. But I believe what Jesus is calling us to is to live into that day to day. He's near. It could be today. May you come, Lord Jesus. May we eagerly expect and wisely expect his coming. But finally, right, there's a sober expectation that we're called to, to understand, right, that as we expect and look forward to the Lord's coming, we also recognize the sinfulness of this world. We recognize that there is a need for a new heaven and a new earth because as wonderful as this world is in so many ways, it is infected by sin and hurt by sin. And so we can read with a certain heaviness of heart that at his coming there will be those who rejoice, but there will be those who mourn. There are those who don't know the Lord, who have not embraced his grace and received his grace. And it should be heavy on us that there will be those who mourn at his coming. Right? And it reminds us that our mission in this age where he is near but he has not yet come is to make him known. Right? To continue to live out our identity as the church. Right? Through words, through actions, through our witness to him. It's our prayer, right? In light of his coming, that more would come to faith with in him. That more would rejoice at his coming. And that there would be less who would mourn. That there would be more that were gathered up, right, and left. Less who grieve when he comes again. But this is also a season as we consider his coming to consider our own sin. 
Right? Not that we deny the grace and the forgiveness of sins that we've received in Jesus, right? We know that we have been fully forgiven. But Advent is a time of repentance, right? As many of you know in the church calendar, there are different colors that go with the different seasons, and purple is the color in Advent and in Lent. Purple is a color associated with repentance. Now, in Lent, there's even more of an emphasis on repentance than there is in Advent, um, but Advent, there is still that emphasis. Right? When John the Baptist, who's also a um, often in the readings that we read during the season of Advent, when he was preparing the way for the first coming of Jesus, for the ministry of Jesus, right, what was his message? Repent. Right? Turn away from those things that are a block between you and the Lord. Right? The image is used of the mountains being flattened right? and valleys being raised up. Right? Those mountains and valleys are like the things, again, in our own lives that in a sense are barriers between more of the Lord coming into our life. John the Baptist called the people, and the Lord calls us now to, to turn away from those things, to say, Lord, how can I bring sort of these mountains to you that you would remove them? How do I bring sort of the valleys to you that you would fill them up and that the way of you coming into my life is more clear, that they're not things preventing and limiting, on, on my end, your work in my life? So again, there's a, a, an element of um, repentance um, and an emphasis on that in the season of Advent. Now, it is kind of cool um, uh, that, again, purple is the color of repentance, but we have one pink candle. Think of this candle as sort of light purple. All right, so we're still in Advent, right? It's still purple, but it, remind us, it reminds us, even in the midst of repentance, actually, in some ways, especially in the midst of repentance, there is joy, right? There is a lightness. So, yes, we feel the heaviness and the reality of our sin, but we also feel the lightness of knowing His grace and knowing, again, when He comes again, He will gather us together as his family. When I was in high school, I worked at a um, Christian camp uh, for a summer as a volunteer, and so us, us group of volunteers were overseen by staff members of that camp. And one of the jobs I had as a volunteer was helping in the dining room, cleaning up the dining room, resetting it, kind of helping students or you know, students that were there get, get food. And so we'd often have times of, again, being in the dining room, doing cleanup and setup. And during those times, we liked to listen to music, um, but an ongoing sort of debate between the, you know, volunteers, at least some of the volunteers, um, and the staff member was what kind of music we could listen to. And the staff member was like, it has to be Christian music. And so we kind of first tried to see, like, what could we count as Christian music? You know, this song mentions God, does it count? And, and eventually we just were like, come on, why does it have to be Christian music? And we get in this argument. And again, it was good-natured and, and um, uh, good to, to talk about. But I remember one time uh, the counselor um, or the staff member said to me, look, that music that you want to listen to right now, do you want to be listening to that when Christ returns? Now, his question in one sense didn't work because my answer was, well, yeah, I would actually. I like this music and I think it's interesting. It wasn't evil, it wasn't bad music, but yeah, I think, you know, it's, it, it actually speaks to my faith even though it's not explicitly Christian. But the question stuck with me, interestingly enough. Again, even though, again, it didn't sort of accomplish what he wanted to. And I've actually remembered it over the years as I've thought, yeah, how do you live with Christ is near? He could come at any moment. And obviously for sinful things, we always want to turn from this. But at times I've contemplated, how does what I'm doing right now align with living in expectation? Perhaps, you know, this music is fine, but is it actually what my soul needs as I, I live in the reality that I'm eagerly expecting Christ's return? Is it actually something that's helping remove those mountains? Or is it perhaps leading to despair or leading to a lack of hope? Again, I don't want to be legalistic, but I think that question of how are you living in light of that this could be the moment 
that Christ comes back, where we are gathered together. And again, no matter what, I believe we'll be joyful to see the Lord. But how does that affect how we live? And so I want to just end. I want to give you a moment. Um, uh, we'll just take a moment of silence here in a minute. Just to bring any requests as we be- begin this season of Advent, a request perhaps that you can bring to the Lord. Maybe that's increase in me joyful expectation of your coming. Increase in me a longing for your coming. Maybe that's, Lord, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom and what does it look like to live in the knowledge that you are near. And maybe that's, Lord, give me repentance. Shine your light on those things, those mountains, those valleys that you are wanting to deal with so that I may know more of you and I may experience even more of your coming right now. So again, let's just take a moment of silence and speak to the Lord in your heart and bring those requests to him and I'll close us up then. Lord, we thank you that you hear our prayers and we, as we begin this season of Advent, we, begin, uh, we bring um, our desires before you.